I'll keep the introduction short and sweet because we're all familiar with Pedro Martinez. He is a son of Chicago. He is a dedicated public servant over numerous administrations, uh, which just proves that he's doing all this for the right reasons. And, um, and, and, and he's a good man, a great educator, and a great civic leader here in Chicago uh, over so many years. Welcome back to City Club, uh, the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, Pedro Martinez. So I got to tell you, I feel a little bit of nostalgia, not only because this is my second time, but you know, 20 years ago, right around July, August, I had just started with CPS, was the budget director, and I got to come to hear Arnie Duncan do his speech here. And so there's just a little bit of nostalgia in this room um, when I think about that. that was 20 years ago. Um, first of all, uh, if there's one thing I want you to hear clearly. What I'm going to talk about today is a reflection of the work. It's a reflection of what's happening in our classrooms. It's a reflection of the, t the amazing team that I have. I want to just, um, I'm going to ask my team just to stand up. I know they hate this, but please, team, can you stand up? Because none of this is possible without the leadership. And I got to remind, remind everybody, we have over 40,000 staff. So this team has an enormous responsibility, right? The fourth largest district in the country. I want to, again, just thank our elected officials. I will tell you, one of the things that's been so heartening for me is the amount of support we have from our elected officials, especially our city council, because, again, not that our state officials don't deserve love, but, God, our city, uh, city council members, they're with me at school visits. We are in the work together. So I just want to thank you and call that out because you are in it every single day in your communities. And, of course, I want to really thank the mayor. You know, Mayor Johnson and I, from, from his election, he and I started meeting, we started having conversations, building a relationship, and I told him, you know, when he started talking about fully supporting schools, fully funding schools, having schools be the center point of our city, I said, you got me. You got me. And so I just want to thank him for his leadership and how excited we are. Uh, I know I saw board member Tanya Woods, but I also want to thank our, our school board because everybody, you know this, and those of you who served on boards, those are, you know, those are works of God. And because, I mean, the, you know, just, you know, the amount of pressure and responsibility. So I just want to acknowledge our, our amazing board, not only member Woods, but all our other board members who do this work every day on behalf of our children. Um, so... We're going to go right into it, everybody, because I have a lot to talk about. So it was a year ago that I was here in front of you. And, you know, I was making some, some comments, because I'm not shy. You know, I was making, I'm a kid from inner city Chicago, so I am not shy about this. I said, you wait, we're going to have a strong academic year. You wait, this is the first year of our three-year recovery plan from our blueprint, and I'm going to show you because I'm seeing what's happening in our classrooms. My team and I, we're in, in schools every week. We are seeing it. So today, again, this is what we're going to talk about. And I knew when I said these statements that this was possible because of the tireless efforts of our educators, school leaders, and our steadfast commitment to equity and, and everybody Nothing is by chance, okay? So anything that you're seeing, there is nothing by chance. It doesn't mean that we got it right, 
But there is a strategy. There is research. We have amazing research partners that we work with. Everything is driven by practice and what we feel is the best to put the district in the right position. Um, and so we, you know, one of the things, of course, that happened to our district as well as the rest of the country is we got hit with COVID-19, this amazing pandemic. And I will tell you, it scared the heck out of us. Not only because we were seeing what was happening uh, with our health, with people dying, people that were close to us, but we also saw our proficiency rates. All the work that CPS had been working at for almost two decades was at risk. And so we pivoted. Uh, we had a five-year strategic plan that never got a chance to be really get off the ground. Uh, we created a three-year blueprint that took those components from the strategic plan and they were laser focused to deal with what we were seeing with the pandemic to make sure our district was coming back. So here's the question. Did our work pay off? Was this the year of recovery that we believed that it could have been? And I am pleased to answer the answer is yes, with some key caveats. Not only are our students recovering, but their successes are allowing us to use adjectives like highest ever, record-breaking in ways that have even exceeded our own expectations. Now, with those caveats, we have a ways to go, everybody. We have a ways to go. I will never say that we're there, but it is a good start. Remember, this was year one of our recovery, right? And I'm going to keep saying it. It's year one. So for all the critics in the room and out there, it's year one, okay? We do this work for the long run. That is who we are. And since we're moving in the right direction overall, our focus now is we're digging deeper into our, into our data to identify those groups that need additional support. Because despite these gains, I will tell you, we are still, and by the way, these gains were led by our students that had the largest gaps, but guess what? Those gaps were wide, they're not gonna get closed in a year. So near the end of my remarks, I'll share more about our strategies we're building to provide equitable access for all students and how this work fits in with our next strategic plan. Go to the next slide. So um, now I'm going to outline the academic data from the past year, starting with our youngest students and working up. One of our top priorities over the past school year has been early literacy. We know this, everybody, that we cannot even build on academic enrichment. We cannot even dream for our students if our children don't have their not proficient readers. So what we do is our, one of our goals and visions is that we want our readers to be proficient by third grade. By the way, one of my sisters is a kindergarten teacher. She's like, CEO, they got to be proficient by kindergarten. But that's a whole different story. She and I have and I have that debate all the time. But this ensures that they have a strong foundation so they can move forward and so that because we know reading is an essential tool. So we knew that during the pandemic, the students that had the, the most, the highest impact was our youngest learners, and this was specifically with COVID-19. If you remember, parents, those of you who had preschoolers, three or four or five-year-olds, remember that experience during the pandemic, right? I remember that experience of trying to get them in front of, front of, a, in front of a, a, a computer. Remember how that worked, right? What was interesting is what we saw, everybody, is that our older students actually did better. They actually navigated, and in fact, our survey data even showed they felt more connected to their schools, but yet we saw the rigor suffer because of what was happening during the pandemic. 
So what we do, everybody, is we have a diagnostic that we apply uh, three times a year, beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year. By the way, this is the first time that over 90% of our schools are using a common diagnostic, right? Opportunities that happened during the pandemic that we didn't have before. For the, and so because of that, I can share with you actual evidence of what's happening in our classrooms. So what we saw was that overall, the percentage of students reaching proficiency more than quadrupled, increasing from 9% at the beginning of the year to 39% at the end of the year. And what I want you to understand when you think about the 9%, that is a function of what our children don't have access to and experiences in their, regular, in their daily lives. Okay? So for my middle class families, when you're taking your children out to different field trips, you're, you're having different trips around, though that vocabulary, those experiences they're building, you have to understand the majority of our children don't have that kind of life. So they're going to start low. And I don't care whether you're in Chicago, I don't care if you're in San Antonio, where, where I was here before, you're in Denver, or you're in Las Vegas. It, every city is the same. The percentage of black students' proficiency level, by the way, increased from 5% to 32%. And the percentage of Latino students reaching proficiency increased from 5% to 31% by the end of the year. So they increased sixfold. So they actually even outperformed the rest of the district, but that is the growth they had all in one year. Of course, the work will never be done. We gotta get to 100%, right? But when you're building these foundations, Think about what's possible as we continue to do this. Now let's go to our older students. Our latest data from students from third through eighth grade, um, these students, they take an assessment called the Illinois Assessment of Readiness, and this is to attract their their readiness in English and in math. And I just got to say this, because I have the podium. Um, Our IAR assessment, so I want you to understand this context. There was a study... um, pre-pandemic that looked at the IR assessment to all the other state assessments in the country. And guess where IR assessment was in terms of rigor? It was in, it was in the top five in the nation. Even more rigorous than our national assessment called the NAEP assessment. That was a study that was done independently, everybody. So think about what that does. So whenever you see these results, I want you to keep that in mind. So when you have a more rigorous assessment, what do you think happens to the results? But as the children are growing, what do you think that means in terms of the results? Right? So I want you to have that context. So the punchline altogether was that we had last year in our first year of recovery the largest gain we ever saw on the IR assessment since the assessment started in 2016. Our English language learners had gains of 5.9 percentage points. Our math was less, 2.6 percentage points, but even with that, everyone, we outperformed the state for the first time. In fact, and in fact, 87% of our, of our schools had gains in reading, 73% had gains in math. It was at scale. And what I want you to think about, because by the way, you know, as parents, we care about this stuff. Trust me, we all do. I just admit it, because you know you look at that information. But what I want you to understand more, it is the evidence of the practices in the classroom. It is the evidence that your children are getting access to grade-level content. It is the evidence that children are getting access to the vocabulary. Even the experiences. 
that for most of our middle class and, and upper income families, you provide that already at home. Right? So it is no coincidence that when you come from that family, almost instantly you're at proficiency. Right? But I want you to understand that is the gap that our teachers are charged to close. So think about that for a second. That's what our teachers are charged to close. So when you see me being a champion for my teachers, that is why. Because I get it. I see it. And by the way, that is not easy to do, everybody. Because you're solving for poverty. So God bless all of us, right? How do we solve for poverty? Now let's look at our high school students. Because by the way, and my team will tell you, I I shouldn't say this right, Bogdana, but Bogdana has, you know, really, really has a little bit of a favoritism for elementary school. She does. I have a little bit, a little bit. You know, you know how, I'll, let's be real parents. You know, you always have that one kid you like a little bit more, you're a little bit more. <laughs> be real. No, no, no. Be real. Like, you know that's true. You know that's true. You know that was true for you when you were growing up. You know that. You know that. I'm a little bit like that with the high schools. I'm a little bit like that. Because, why? Because once the kids are in high school, time is ticking. It is high stakes, right? So wherever the students are at, we got to meet them where they're at, and we got to, we got to, we don't have time. The time is running out. I always tell my parents, your child is in elementary school, give us the time. I promise you, let me prove it to you, but give us the time, I will do right by your child. My seniors, I got a short amount of time. So guess where I spend a lot of time talking to is to my seniors, because I only got that window. And I can't say, hey, I wish I would have came five years ago. I wish I would have been here when you were in eighth grade. I would have done this. It doesn't work, everybody. So this is why this is a big deal. Okay, I want you to understand that. Um, Oops, you know what? I think, did I skip a slide on the middle school algebra first? Sorry. Okay. Sorry, but I'm getting too excited. So before I talk about our high school students, I want to talk about as another amazing strategy, which is our math. So you saw our results earlier. Our math gains weren't as high as our reading. By the way, that's a huge emphasis for this year. But for us, one of the biggest initiatives we have is getting students access to algebra by eighth grade. Why is that? If they get access to algebra by eighth grade, they can get access to statistics, to pre-calculus, to calculus. For those people in the room that are in STEM fields, think about your pathway to get into STEM fields. The only way you're going to get into STEM fields is you've got to have that foundation. And again, couple that with science. So for us, this was a big deal. So two years ago, more than 20% of our students who were ready for algebra, because we've always had diagnostics, didn't have access to algebra. And by the way, guess which neighborhoods didn't have access to it? Our south and west side. I'm happy to report everybody to, as we stand today, over 98% of our students have access to algebra, more than 1,000 more than two years ago. Here's what's even more exciting. So you push up the numbers, so what do you think happens to the passing rates, right? Normally, they go down. You know what happened in our district? The passing rates went up. And what's really even cool, for those students that don't pass, we're seeing success during the summer. It's like a refresher. And worst case scenario, they take algebra again in ninth grade and they breeze through it. Because who the heck made the rule that you gotta have you know, algebra by age 13, right? It's our educational system. So that is the worst case scenario and we know that algebra is the gatekeeper course for that math pathway that lays the foundation for STEM. 
So regardless, it's a win-win for everybody, but I will tell you, the vast majority are passing it, but even the students that are not, we go deeper. We're like, okay, we got summer programs, okay. Worst case scenario, we'll do something, you know, as they start ninth grade. So now let's shift to high school. So I gotta tell you this, our class of 23, uh, a phenomenal class, one of our strongest classes ever, Record, rate, record graduation rate of 84%. That is more than doubled since 2001. And I gotta say this, everyone. You know, if you go back to 2001, now I graduated in 1987. I know I look younger, but <laughs> trust me, 1987, I can show you birth records. So 1987, imagine what the graduation rate was then. So anybody who was in CPS during the 80s, 90s, and I would say 70s and early 2000s, if you weren't going to Lane Tech, if you weren't going to Whitney Young, by the way, Northside Prep, Walter Payne was just, they were just getting opened. They were just getting their first cohorts. It felt like survival. It felt like, God, we made it. I don't care if you were on the south side, the west side, anywhere in the city. And I always tell my students, Ask your family members during that era if they went to a CPS high school, how many freshmen they started with and how many seniors they ended with. I started with 700 freshmen, I ended with 170 seniors. Half of us that went to college. So when you see this rate go up, it is a huge deal. Because when I, you hear me talk later about what the goal is here, which is economic and social mobility, I want to cut to the chase. How the hell do you have social and economic mobility if you can't even graduate from high school? And think about anybody who I ever met, because I've been doing this for more than 20 years, and I asked them, hey, what was your academic path? When their student that dropped out or had to go back and get their G, like the voice changes. The tone changes, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, I dropped out. Like what, oh, I dropped out. It changes. That follows you as an adult, everyone. That is not something that is just a statistic. It follows you. It follows your confidence level. It follows your identity of who you are. So when our district was at 41%, I want you to understand the consequence that was happening at that time. I want you to understand what was happening in 1987 when I was a senior. Our five-year rate is actually even higher, 85.6%. And we just this means everybody, is it, even for those few students that need a little bit more time, we don't throw them out. We say, you need a little bit more time? But by the way, we take care of it mostly in four years, right? But that extra 1%, those are the students that need more. And by the way, we keep working with them. We never give up on them. What's also, uh, you know, on the other side, what's great is that our dropout rate today is now at 5.3%, second only to the 2021 year, which was had some anomalies because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Our dropout rate has been under 10% for the last 11 straight years. So I want you to internalize that, what it means for those students who do drop out, right? That's why this number has to be zero. Here's what's really exciting. The class of 23, and by the way, I was going out challenging them because the class of 22 had just broke a record of scholarships, 1.5 billion with a B, and I said, guys, I need you to break that record. I mean, I was literally, my staff would say, I was going out like crazy talking to see like, you gotta do it, you gotta do it. 
Everybody, boy, did they show me $2 billion with a B in scholarship. Every high school, without exception, had scholarship winners for the first time in our district's history. Every single high school. And we're going to get into some interesting Q&A, I think, about college and college graduation. But here's what I got to Let me give you a punchline. You go to a highly selective college, what do you think their graduation rate is? What do you think it is? 90? Close to 100%? Hell, because those schools, they'll do whatever it takes to get you to graduate because their reputation is on the line, right? That's how they charge those high tuitions. Let's call it like it is. And so what do scholarships do? They're the entry to get into those more selective colleges. Call it like it is. Because who is shut out out of those colleges? Are kids who don't have the money. Simple as that. Even if you have the academics, you don't have the money. So guess what? And by the way, it's not just tuition. It's not just room and board. It is the books. It is the travel. Parents of college kids, tell me, start itemizing all the costs you spend for your kids. God bless you that you can do it. But imagine a kid who doesn't have any of that. Think about that. That's why this is a big deal. And nearly half of our students graduated high school with more than just a diploma. They graduated with at least one early college and career credential. By the way, this is a big deal, everybody, and this is really about the future of our work. And I'm going to say this, I'm gonna, and I'm going to repeat it a couple of times. It is not enough. It is not enough for our students of poverty and our students of color to be college ready. It is not enough for them to be career ready. They got to be in it. They got to be in college courses. They got to be in internships. They got to see it. And they got to see it while they're in high school. You know why? Because they still listen to us. <laughs> Parents, can we, right? Am I wrong? As they get older, do they start listening less to you? While they're in high school, I know they give you attitudes. Trust me, I got a preteen right now, 13 year old. We're going through that right now, right? Seventh grader. They still listen to us. So our counselors, our teachers, they're on them about their grades. They're like, what the heck? You didn't turn in that assignment? Really? I got you into this college course? Because you know that professor's not going to be kind to you? That is what's happening every day in our high schools now. We're helping these students do that. We had over 1,000 students in internships. But I need a lot more. More to come. So through these credentials, our students earned 125,000 college credits, everybody. A record, a record. So when you think about persistence, which I'm gonna talk about in a second, the stronger, I say this to our staff, you gotta build their armor. Our higher ed system was never created for our kids. It was never created for kids of poverty. Let's face it, for the women in the room, it was not created for women initially. Let's call it like it is, it was not created. So then when you, when you look at why completion rates are lower for kids of color, for kids of poverty, it was never created for them. The supports were never created. And let's call it like it is. And so how do we solve that? We got to do it together. We got I have to have them in college courses while they're in high school. I got to build up their armor. I got to build up their confidence. So that way, if they want to switch majors, God damn it, they switch it while they're in high school. They don't switch while they're in college. That's why it takes six years to graduate everyone. 
That's what it does. I mean, again, I, I hate to be the master of the obvious. My wife tells me, like, you're the master of the obvious. Yes, I am. Because I feel like I have to yell at it. Because I feel like it gets lost out there in the ether. I think because as we get older, we forget. We forget what it meant to be that high school student. We forget how awkward it was. How confusing it was. Even in the best conditions, think about your own upbringing. How confusing it was. Now put yourself in the, in the shoes of a kid who you're the first one in your family that's, kind of, that's thinking about college. You're the first one in your family that is even thinking, God, I know my father wants me to work because they need money, but I want to go to college because I have a dream. I actually have an idea of what I want to do. Think about that, how that feels. In fact, we have seen a 50% increase in the number of students enrolled in college. And today, our number right now, in fact, it's, it's our, in 2004, 43% of our schools were enrolled in college, everybody, and today that number is 65. We're right at the national average. Now, we peaked a couple years before, but I will tell you, what's really interesting, when you look at the dips that we had uh, in 2020 and 21, uh, I was getting calls from universities saying, oh my God, what's happening? We're seeing less students. Our, our enrollment is down. They were calling me. And I said, settle down. Settle down. They're going through the pandemic. What do you expect the kid? Do you think they're excited to start online at your institution? Settle down. Give it, give it a little bit of time. We saw an immediately tick up in 2022. Class of 23, that is not official, but I'll just tell you right now, Every college president I'm talking to is saying the opposite now. Oh my goodness, we've never seen more CPS students than today. Oh my goodness, we've never seen more diversity than we're seeing today. And I said, well, college president, that's good. That's good to know. I want to know, do, uh, do you see them better prepared? They said, heck yeah. And you know why? Because they're like, they were in dual credit classes with me. They were actually working with our institution or with our partner in the community colleges. They're like, they are better prepared. So imagine six years out from now what that data could look like, or ideally four to five years. Even more exciting than this is we know right now, based on our data, that almost three-fourths of our students are actually persisting to college. And, and everybody, we're still early on this work as we're getting them better, getting them into, making sure that they're in the college experience while, we're, while they're still in high school. So again, to say this again, our class of 23 was the most successful graduating class that we have seen in the history of CPS. And let me tell you why, even before you clap, let me tell you why this is a big deal. All right, let me rewind the clock. 2019, these students uh, were just finishing eighth grade the spring of 2019. So they started the fall of 2019. What happened during the spring of 2020? Right, what happened, right? None of us, all of us, I think, experienced that, right? They spent their sophomore year learning remotely. Spent their sophomore year trying to figure it out, as we were all figuring it out. And then even their junior year, guess what? That's when we hit our peak in COVID. Remember Omicron? Remember that period? So last year was their first year where they didn't have a disruption related to the pandemic. And yet, this is what they did. So now, think about that, how special that is. 
And, you know, to be clear, everybody, again, it's not that we're there, not that we've achieved what we want, but I want you to understand the momentum that we're building. And we have to continue to build on these gains. And we have to continue to acknowledge it's not being felt equally across our community. It's not being felt equally across all of our students. Let's own that. But also celebrate what is happening in the foundations. Because again, everybody, the data that I'm sharing with you, it is evidence of what is happening in our schools. It is evidence of what's happening in our classrooms. It is, I want you to picture these students, I want you to picture these teachers and counselors working with the college professors, that some of them are not that nice, and saying, hey, it is students saying, what the heck, I'm, this is an awesome opportunity to go take a college class. Heck yeah, I'm going to do that. It is students taking more advanced placement courses. It is students taking more international baccalaureate courses. Because they are saying, okay, I need, to be, I need to be better prepared. I gotta have my armor built, right? Because I don't have the benefit of all my siblings that have went to college. I don't have the benefit of my parents having college diplomas. I don't have that benefit. Cards weren't dealt like that for me. And they're taking advantage. So we rely, um, the other thing that, that we wanna, you know, is we think about leading indicators. We rely on a, on a metric developed by the University of Chicago Freshman on Track which is one of our most accurate indicators of future success. And what this is telling us right now, everybody, as we think about sustainability for future graduation rates, and you saw the college rates rising, the persistence is rising, scholarships are rising, college credits are rising, this is one of our leading indicators. And we know that our freshman on track rate right now is at 88.7%, almost at a record level. So we're sustaining and we're going to grow this. Another cornerstone of our work is our Learn, Plan, Succeed initiative, which creates a post-secondary plan as a, as a graduation requirement of CPS. And by the way, I say this because this was not something that I think was popular when CPS first did it, but we're one of the first districts in the country that said, you're not going to graduate from any of our high schools unless you have a post-secondary plan. And what I want you to understand is, yeah, it's one thing like you actually create a plan, but think about the conversations that are required. And by the way, what we're doing today, more than ever, is working with our counselors to expand the options of our, for our students. So yes, I will own it. Double down. I was here in CPS when we said college will be a North Star for us. I was here. It was 2003. We literally said graduating kids is not enough. They need social and economic mobility. It, and at that point, everybody, the best answer was college. That was 2003, right? 20 years ago. We know today that there's opportunities with apprenticeships. There's opportunities with trades. We know today that 40% of the jobs in our economy don't require a bachelor's degree, but they require a certification. They require an associate's degree. And then students can build from there. So our counselors, and we do this through our, our three components that we have around exploration, preparedness, and launch, our counselors work with our students to get them exposure as early as middle school. This is district-wide. So they can see what those options are. And we're working closely with the trades to remove what those barriers are. So again, everybody, this is what I tell students. This is the speech, that, the speech you heard earlier, and I'll, I'll talk about what that initiative is in a second. I was addressing students saying, our goal is to find something that drives your excitement. Because if I can get you excited about something, you're going to work for me. You're going to work that much harder. 
And when we do that with these opportunities, that's what's going to create the success. That's what you're going to see in the current metrics. Um, a lot of this work relies on partnerships. And there's a few in particular that I want to acknowledge. First, this is our Chicago Roadmap. This is, this is an initiative that started even before I started that started to really tackle how do we work with the community colleges in a closer way so that we could ensure that our students are better prepared. It's tied, uh, it, is, it is grounded by five domains. Uh, for example, we have an academic readiness and success domain. In the past year alone, in fact, um, so one of the things we saw everybody as part of this initiative is that our students, as they were getting into, to get into college courses, they were being stuck in remedial traps, stuck in remedial math, remedial English. Today, as we speak, we have more than 3,000 students taking care of remedial English while they're still in high school. And we have a similar number doing it as, they're, they're, uh, as they are uh, same, similar in, in math as well. In addition, uh, we, we actually have scholarships for them now, and they are driving our dual credit. Now, one of, the, one of the initiatives that is very exciting, and we call it the Runway 606. So this is brand new. Uh, so the video that you saw earlier was me addressing the students. First cohort, 85 students. These are students in a partnership with IIT and the community colleges. They start as juniors in our high schools are actually getting an opportunity to get an associate's degree by the time they finish high school. The goal then is to help them get a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity through IIT up to a master's degree through IIT. And they would do it six years from being a junior in high school. So two years ahead of schedule. And so this is just an example. When we're taking care of the core work making sure that, again, they have their access to grade level content, making sure that they don't have to deal with remedial classes. This allows us to build on this work. So imagine, and this is just one example, but we want to do this in healthcare. We want to do this in advanced manufacturing. We want to do this in every major field. We already have an initiative similar to this in education for our future teachers. So this is the goal is for us to continue to to, to build on this, um, and again, this is what's possible. So, again, everybody, I want to acknowledge with all this work that's happening, we continue. We will continue to still work longer term for the to uh, to make sure that we address achievement gaps because, as we're building these programs, one of our goals is making sure that we acknowledge that we still have these gaps. And we know that as we think about, again, all these gains, still, we still have to ensure that they're being felt throughout our city evenly. So I'm going to talk right next about our strategic plan. So one of the things, everybody, that we've been charged with is making sure that as we think about the future, building the next plan that builds on this work that continues the success, but also addresses the persistent gaps that exist to our community. And we're going to make sure, and the strategy you're seeing, in fact, if you don't mind, let's go to the uh, dual credit real quick. Right there. One of our most promising initiatives that we have right now is for the first time in our district, we are seeing an initiative at scale where we have no racial gaps. What you see in front of you is students that are getting at least a semester of college credit. And we're growing the program 
by 20 to 30 percent a year. And what's great is that it is our high schools that have don't have the, 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 the enrollment to have a lot of advanced placement courses. Sometimes they don't have the enrollment to have a strong IB program. These are the high schools that are really jumping on this. And by the way, the demand is getting so strong that, again, our goal is just how to, is making sure that we just monitor the growth, but we're seeing this as one of our key strategies. So I share this with you as, as, as we think about the future. And let's go to the strategic plan slide. Sorry. So as we build our strategic plan, this is what this is going to be one of the hallmarks of the work. And let's just end with our partnership, and then we'll go to questions. So one of the, what I will, again, put to everybody, what if, as a community, as a district, as a city, as the world of philanthropy, our community-based organizations, our employers, what if we owned we all collectively own social and economic mobility. I want you to think about that for a second. What if we actually owned it? And we said, that is, that is what we're going to be about. We will do our part. We'll work with higher ed to do their part. Imagine if we did that. The work that we're doing right now, and you saw the list of partners that we have, we cannot do this work by ourselves. Again, I'm going to repeat. My teachers have been charged we're trying to solve poverty. That is what their charge is. We don't talk about it explicitly, but that's what it is. That's what the metrics show us. That is, what that is their biggest challenge. And it takes all of us to work on that. But this slide should be 10 times bigger for a city like Chicago. And that's what I'm going to ask of all of you. Because if we can collectively own economic and social mobility, imagine where our city will be. Imagine where your children will be. Imagine where your grandchildren will be. That is the opportunity ahead of us. And what I'm showing you today is that with some strategic investments, with some, some good research-based initiatives, with the right partnerships, look at what's possible with all the challenges that exist in this city. And I can say this because I love this city. It's my city. But it is a tough city to be in. Am I wrong? It is a tough city to be in. But look what is possible. So with that, everybody, we'll go to Q&A. Thank you, everyone. Catch your breath there. Thank you, Pedro. Um, it's quite obvious why you're, you're such a great leader, and uh, we're fortunate to have you here in Chicago. Uh, we have a number of questions. We're going to squeeze a couple in. Um, if you do, I see there are a couple out there. Amanda's going to bring them up, but uh, we'll try to keep this, keep this quick. Um, with enrollment shrink, and this is coming from Susan Snyder, uh, with enrollment shrinking, why aren't overhead costs also going down? So, so a couple of things again, and I, I, it's a great question. So first of all, our enrollment is actually stabilized for the first time in 10 years. We didn't talk about that. So, and by the way, we were seeing enrollment stabilize even last year as we were coming in. Um, and of course, now with our migrants, we're even starting to see a tick up in enrollment, although it's too early to tell whether, whether that will be permanent. I will share with you that what is happening today in our classrooms it is because of the investments we have made to provide those resources. Our overhead is still one of the lowest in the country. It's about 4 to 
think of your organization, what is your overhead? That is our overhead, everybody. Now, we have scale on our side, so I want to call that out. But the dollars are in the classrooms. The dollars are in the supports for the students, and that is the commitment that we have as, as a district. And so always we'll look for efficiencies, don't get me wrong. But with that, again, I need to make sure my teachers have the tools, that they have the systems and supports to be able to serve our children. Because again, everybody, we're dealing with poverty, we're dealing with violence, we're dealing with all the challenges that are in our neighborhoods, in our schools, we have to make sure that we're serving these children in the best way possible. All right, um, Gregory Schaefer asked, do you have a problem with fentanyl? And I think he means CPS as an institution. Um, and if yes, how are you addressing it? I just, I'm, I'm, re I'm reading this. So <laughs> Very the, serious yeah, issue. Yeah, no, it is a serious issue. Um, so we are partnering actually with the city, the Department of Health. You're going to see parents, I don't want you to get surprised, you're going to hear about Narcan being in our schools. Because again, whether we like it or not, it is always a risk. And we better, we, it's better for us as a district to be prepared. It's better for you as parents to be prepared. Here's the reality, folks. It is harder to be a parent today than ever before. The, the availability of these things are more than ever. And it doesn't matter what your income level is, by the way. So, again, just count on us to be partners, but we are partnering with the Department of Health to address this issue. It's not as significant in Chicago as it is in the suburbs, but... It doesn't matter to me because no matter how many children it is, we have to be ready to make sure that we, we can save their lives. Um, and three questions, and, and they seem to be coming from the same area. So I'm going to credit this ingenuity um, and, and combine a couple of your questions into uh, what will be, uh, let's see, what role will the arts and arts education play in CPS's new strategic plan? And how, and, and how can partners like ingenuity help. Yeah. So know this, uh, no more will we ever go back to a period where children would not have access to the arts in our district. No more. Those days are long gone. Here's the help we need, though. Our colleges of education don't produce enough art teachers because that was not a priority for our district. And, in fact, you know, our team right now is actually building, and we have an amazing new uh, leader for our programs, which I'm very excited uh, to have, and I know he's going to have a strong vision, but what we're going to need is a lot of collaboration because we have an amazing, amazing, you know, culture of art here in Chicago. So I want us to tap into it, and unfortunately, we're behind everybody. Let's just call it like it is. We're behind because we, again, this, these are relatively new investments, and so you have my commitment. I will tell you, we know that the arts promotes learning. We know that the arts promotes engagement. It is a hook for our children. And so we gotta invest, as well as athletics, as well as extracurriculars. We all know this. How many of you as parents who have middle school and high school schoolers have your kids in this type of activities already, whether they're in their, in their school or outside of school, right? We have to replicate that because again, not all of our parents have the means to do it on their own. There are a few more, but I'm gonna we're a couple minutes over, and one more because, uh, well, it's Curtis Tarver. Um, uh, what are you doing to eliminate uh, testing four-year-olds for a handful of goods, quote-unquote, good schools? Uh, are you willing to reassess uh, what's on the test so more students can prepare and have a choice to test better and attend these schools? Yeah, it's actually, it's actually a great question. It's a good one to end on. 
So one of the things that we are looking heavily at is our current practices around testing, testing kids in, testing kids in at a young age. So just know we're asking those questions ourselves. Um, Here's what we're building, everybody, and it's going to take us some time. Our vision is that every school will have the experiences that our children need to be successful. They will have the academic rigor. We'll have the academic enrichment. We'll have the arts. The reason our magnet schools are so popular for our parents is because they don't worry about their children being challenged. They don't worry about their children getting access to grade-level content. And on top of that, they get enrichment. Right? So who's not going to want that? And the one thing that I remind our team, these investments that we're having in our, in our schools, they're relatively new. Right? So for our families that are experiencing it today, they're seeing a difference, and they're telling us they're seeing a difference. But it's going to take time. For our new parents, when you just have a four- and five-year-old, oh, my God, when I hear, like, i got to get my child ready to get tested, I go, what are you talking about? you got to get them to get tested. So let's have the conversation about the, the schools that exist. In the meantime, we are going to look hard at these policies because they have unintended consequences, and especially around excluding our children most who frankly need those, you know, need that enrichment even more because they don't have the means at home. Um, last thing, everybody, I just want to call this out. Um, I got so passionate about my speech that I went off script, so I apologize to my team for this. But uh, we have the, the Children First Fund that's here in the room, and I could not do this work without their partnership. So please, it is one of the easiest ways for you to get involved is through our Children First Fund. And, and I'll just end with this. When I look at this room, when I look at the people that are are, are our supporters that are not even in this room, we can accomplish amazing things. There is nothing that we can't do together. And what I will tell you, what I'm showing you is the evidence that our children already know that. They know that. They've been waiting for us. They've been waiting. They're like, I knew I could handle a college class. I was just waiting for somebody to offer it to me. I knew that I could get a scholarship. I was just waiting for that extra support to help me understand what's available. So for employees in the room, my students are ready. And by the way, they will be the most loyal workforce you're going to have. Why? Because they listen to us. They're still in high school. (laughs) They do. You get to shape your future workforce. Philanthropy, there is no better investment than our students. Make, you know, look at the results. There is no better investment than our teachers and social workers and counselors and school leaders who get to know these children every single day and they see them beyond a data point, beyond a stat, beyond a test score. They see them for who they are. And it is the work that we preach. So I will invite any of you, come visit our schools. See firsthand what we're seeing, but double down, invest partner with us. I am opening the doors to you. Help us build this next strategic plan. Help us make this district what it can be. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro Martinez and, and your team for all the good that you're doing. There's so much good happening out there, and this is proof. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing it here at City Club. Clearly, there's more to come, and we hope that you'll be back. And uh, there is more to come with City Club. Next week, we have a panel on charter schools on the 12th. On the 14th, we have Commissioner Jamie Ree. I think there's a long waiting list for that. Um, But please come back, uh, and with so much more to come, we'll see you back at City Club soon. Thanks again.